Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 43, this is the word of God. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Amen. Desperation drives us to do things that we normally wouldn't do. To take leaps that would ordinarily frighten us. And this is a story of two different people, yet who are similar enough. Two females, a woman and a girl, both of them bound by desperation. A woman who had been sick for 12 long years, and the girl who lived only 12 short years before dying of sickness. One of them approached Jesus, and then the other one waited until she lay dead on her bed. And in the midst of all this, we have a father driven to desperation also as he watched his daughter slowly pass into death. And these two individuals, you have this woman and this girl, they find their stories masterfully woven together in their desperation. The two of them form this part of this larger story here recorded by Mark. And Mark put them together intentionally. He wanted to show us something about Jesus by not just recording half of the story, but by tying both together. 
And we don't want to sharply divide what was intended to be together, but it's like a bigger story where two individuals' own stories collide with each other in one moment. Every person who you encounter, wherever it is, at the grocery store, on the street, even as you're driving around, every person who you encounter has a story and they have a background of their own. And so even for those brief interactions, both of your stories and everything behind them intersect in that moment. They weave together. And part of compassion is recognizing that. So we're going to look, though, here at, two, the, at these, this passage here in two parts. Uh, we're going to look at both individually, but we also want to remember how they fit together. And we want to take them as parts of the whole. And it begins with a man named Jairus. We're told that he's one of the rulers of the synagogue. And in ways that we can understand for what that means, he's one of, essentially one of the elders of the synagogue. He helped to oversee worship. He helped to oversee the general functioning of the synagogue. And as a religious culture, the synagogue formed a central hub for community life then. So understandably, Jairus, as a synagogue ruler, was a very noteworthy person in town. He had a sense of prestige, and there was considerable influence that he would have had as well. But we learn about his daughter here. Twelve years of age, she was sick. So sick that she was on the verge of death. And it seemed like nothing could help her. Apart from some sort of deep intervention, she was going to die. And this appeared to be her last moments. So what could be done? What could Jairus do? Well, it just so happens that Jesus has entered into town. Perhaps he could do something for her. And so he rushes out to find Jesus, which wouldn't have been too hard considering all of the crowds. Just find where the crowd is. And because he was who he was, I'm sure that as he approached the crowd, the crowd parted as he came to Jesus so that a clear path went right to him. Will you come and save my daughter? Come and lay hands on her so that she might be made well. And so off they go with this large crowd in tow, surrounding them, swarming them, almost like this queen bee here at the center of a hive where all the activity revolves around her and the workers swarm around her. Well, Jesus and Jairus are walking to his house with the swarms of people all going about them and pressing in on them. And that's when we are introduced to this woman, an anonymous woman. We don't know her name, and she's hidden in the crowd. And she too wants to see Jesus. But unlike Jairus, she actually has to fight her way through the crowd, weaving and navigating to make her way to him. And she comes with deep desperation. What's her problem? She has a serious physical condition. For 12 long years, she was afflicted with an ongoing bleed. A chronic menstrual bleed that couldn't be stopped. So what did this mean for her? Obviously it afflicted her physically. An ongoing bleed like this would have left her extremely physically weak and anemic. And for 12 years she was exhausted and had little physical strength. But it also had religious implications upon her also. The Old Testament law in Leviticus 15 gave regulations regarding bodily fluids including a woman's bleeding. And any woman with a bleed was considered to be, in this time here, ceremonially unclean. 
Not only did they bear the stigma of being unclean in that time, but they were also unable to enter into corporate worship for the duration of the time that they had the bleed. She hadn't been able to go to worship God with the rest of God's people for 12 years. And that left her isolated. Not only because of worship, but because anyone else who she would have touched or come in contact would would have also been considered unclean. Whatever else she touched would have been considered unclean. Who wanted to be close to an unclean person and risk being made unclean themselves? Not that you couldn't You couldn't become ceremonially clean again, but it was a hassle. It was time-consuming. And trying to be healed of her problem left her in a financial crisis also. She had spent all of her money looking for medical solutions to stop her issue. But it hadn't helped her at all. She actually got worse, it says. All her resources had been exhausted with no help. So who was this woman? She was a poor soul who had suffered for 12 long years with compounded desperation. And it looked like there was no end in sight. The remainder of her days seemed to be a state of weakness, exhaustion, and loneliness. What does restoration look like for someone like this? It's holistic, not only for her bleeding, but everything else that came with it. And there are three, the three events involving this woman that we want to look at here. Three ways that this story moves forward. And the first is that the woman approaches Jesus. All right, so kids, when, you, when, you, when can you go to Jesus? How can you approach Jesus? It's not because you've done something to make him happy that means that you can approach him. You can go to Jesus whenever you want. Just because you need him and you want him. And this woman is tired and weak, and she came to Jesus knowing that she wasn't strong. Well, what was the last time that you felt tired, or grumpy, or sad, or hungry? That feeling doesn't mean that you can't go to him. You can always go to him, no matter how you're feeling, even if you're mad. And you can go to Jesus whenever you need something. But do you need to do it in secret? No, you don't. Do you need to hide somewhere? Of course not. But that's what this woman thought. She had a really big need and she was really tired. Not sleepy tired, but this kind of worn out tired. And she was desperate because no one else could help her. So instead of just walking up to her or yelling out to him, she came quietly and hiding in the crowd. She thought that she needed to go to him in secret here. So she snuck up on him, hiding among all the people like she was sneaking up on him on a, in a game of tag. But not because tag's fun, because she was scared. Now you don't need to be scared when you can come to Jesus. He wants you to come to him. But she was about to learn that here in this moment. And she approaches Jesus covertly. She comes under the cover of the masses. Not to speak to Jesus, but simply to reach for his garments and expecting to be made well. So why reach to take hold and not ask? We're not exactly sure. But something in here, though, reflected this quasi-pagan idea that a person's power was transferred into their garments. And she seemed to have a, had a few misguided ideas about Jesus. But what was it, though, that she knew? She knew that he could make 
her well. See, at the heart here, there is a kernel of faith. She had an incomplete understanding of Jesus, but a basic understanding nonetheless. Did you have a full understanding of Jesus when you first believed? Or when you first recognized that you believed? For most of us, it's not, it's not likely. We might have even come to Jesus in the first place for some pretty misguided reasons. But Jesus is patient, he is kind, and he welcomes us, and over and over we learn more about him. But then we begin to grow into a better knowledge and a better understanding of the more that we get acquainted with him over time. It's like learning to savor a fine wine over, over a period of time. We know it's good at first, but we have to acquire the palate, and then we don't realize just how good it is until later. We encounter Jesus and we see that he's good, but over time, as our palate begins to get acquired more, we begin to see just how good he really is. And often we learn more about him as we learn more about ourselves also. We continue to recognize how needy we really are, but in turn, though, we recognize how beautiful a savior and a friend that he is. We only scratch a surface of his magnificence over our lifetimes. In John chapter 6, Jesus had just fed the 5,000 people. Everyone was excited. They're all around him. It's like Jesus couldn't make a single wrong move. And then he said some really weird things. He said, well, you know what? Unless you eat my body and you drink my blood, you have no life. And that got people kind of weirded out. And the, most everyone left. And then he turns to his disciples and he says, well, how about you? Are you going to leave too? And Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Essentially he says, I don't know what you're talking about, but I do know that I need you. See, if you're mulling who Jesus is... And if you're asking questions, you don't need to have everything about him figured out this morning to approach or take hold of him. It's okay to have some unanswered questions. Jesus doesn't ask that, that you show him your dissertation about himself to prove all of your knowledge to come to him. Because like this woman, weak and exhausted, knowing that you need him, but you're not quite sure of everything else about him, you can come to him. And there's plenty of room for all of us to grow, especially if Jesus really is this good and this beautiful and this transcendent. See, faith isn't for intellectuals only. There's a knowledge that comes with faith by necessity. In order to put your rest and your trust in something, you need to have a rudimentary knowledge at least. But the bar for knowledge is pretty low. Now, we had repairs done on, on one of our vehicles this week, and it's complicated. For one thing, I don't understand all of the inner workings of cars. But then when you throw in the fact that it's a hybrid and it has EV stuff too, then like all the contexts I have are just out the window. But my knowledge, though, what the service employee told me, and then the jargon that I tried to interpret on the invoice, that there told me enough that I could press the button and have faith to the point that I expected that it would work. I didn't need to understand everything in it, everything involved. I just needed to understand that it had been fixed and that there was something that, there that made sense on that paper and what that man told me and that it would work. 
The depth of Jesus' knowledge is fathomless. Like, where could you even stop? So the basic question, though, for you to, to start with, to ask here, is this. These two. Who is he? And will he rescue you? Asking other questions to gain a deepening knowledge is good. We ought to. It's part of, of growing in the Christian life. But if you've been searching for Jesus, are you also, though, using that as an excuse to avoid actually coming to him? Or likewise, have we used the preconceived idea of needing a deep knowledge of Jesus as a bar to individuals entering into life with Jesus? Now, certainly not intentionally, but unknowingly. When we welcome people into faith, we need to remember that sanctification, that growth in knowledge and grace comes after our justification, after our acceptance and faith. You can't put one before the other. It's faith and justification, and then it's sanctification. It's faith, and then it's growth and continued knowledge and continued growth and grace. So this woman reaches out for Jesus, his garment, and she's made well. Her bleeding stops. She feels it inside of her. She is healed as the restorative power of God floods into her. Her restoration is holistic. It isn't merely that her bleed is healed, but all the other symptoms which stem from it are done away with also. Her source of uncleanliness is made well. It's taken away. The isolation that she experienced from it is over. Strength comes back into her weakened body after 12 years of living in severe anemia. She was free to go back into the temple and to worship. She could regain or rejoin public religious life. We see an example of the unclean coming to Jesus, reaching out and touching him and being restored. Jesus does for her restoring her condition so that she's able to come into the presence of God and able to worship. Jesus does for her what he does for all who are unclean and weak people who come out and reach out to him in faith. He restores the unclean into wholeness, which centers upon his work on the cross. He willingly took the uncleanliness of his people, the uncleanliness of their sins, and the only clean one became unclean for us so that we might be clean in him. She may not have realized it when she had reached out. Again, that's that rudimentary understanding that she had. But she did, though, at the same time, need Jesus' as garments. Not as physical garments, but what the Bible refers to as his robes of righteousness, his pure white garments, his Holy garments that cover over us when we reach out to him by faith. When you approach Jesus, that's what he does. He has taken your sin and your sources of uncleanliness on the cross. And he has wrapped you in his beautiful robes of righteousness. And those robes make you beautiful and pleasing to come into the presence of God. Now some people wear their Sunday best when they go to church because they're entering into God's presence. But if you come here on a Sunday morning wearing Christ... Dressing yourself up is actually, in a way, dressing yourself down. Because you are wearing Christ's righteousness, and that is all that you need. So first, this woman approaches Jesus. But second, the second thing that happens here, which is wild, is that Jesus stops. 
Who touched my garments? Who touched my garments? What a crazy thing to say with everyone around him along the way. The disciples say, you see the crowd pressing around you and yet you say, who touched me? Think of all the people coming into contact with Jesus and brushing up against his clothes. But what happened here was something unique. It's not a happenstance contact, like they just bumped into him. But there was something that made the touching of Jesus' garments from this woman unique. Or else people would have just been getting healed left and right for just bumping into him. But what makes this really crazy, though, baffling crazy, is that it seems like Jesus isn't sensing any urgency that the current situation required. The life of a little girl is hanging in the balance. She needs him. And yet, what is Jesus doing? He's stopping along the way amid the crowd. Who touched my clothes? And you sense the urgency here in, in the disciples' words. What do you think about Jairus? What do you think he was thinking about? It's his daughter who's on her deathbed. Like imagine calling an ambulance for a medical emergency only to have it show up late because they stopped along the way for someone else who was in trouble. Yes, that's important. They need help too. But I called the ambulance. I'm having a heart attack. I'm in a grave emergency. Do you think that's what Jairus was also thinking? But here's something else though. Who was Jairus? He was a ruler in the synagogue. A well-respected man, both religiously and in the community. And who was this woman? We don't know. She was just an anonymous woman. Do you think that that dynamic played into this as well? Now, they didn't know who they were stopping for yet. But they were supposed to be going to the house of a respected individual, an important man, to save his daughter from the brink of death. And here's Jesus musing to the crowd about who touched his clothes. Jesus, why? Do we do that too? Do we ask that question also? But Jesus, or Jairus and this woman, though, both discover two different things about Jesus in this moment. And we'll spend more time next week looking at, at this from Jairus' perspective. But we're going to look this morning, as we have been, about this woman. For her, what she learns is that Jesus doesn't show any preferences for individuals and status as he stops for her. From a Western fairness perspective, what, what, what would we expect here? Well, he asked first, so Jesus should go with him. From a utilitarian perspective, this makes no sense. Go with the important man. Heal this little 12-year-old girl so that she can enjoy the many long and fruitful days that are ahead of her. It's sad about this woman. It really is. But what will bring the most good to as many people in this moment? But that's not thinking like Jesus. That's not thinking in accordance with with God. Jesus doesn't have any more time for someone or any less time for someone based on their status. He is no respecter of persons based on their worldly position. He is perfectly willing to put the important on hold while he gets down and has a private moment with the nobody. He's willing to turn aside and hear the desperate pleas of the poor and needy even while doing work that might seem to be more important or working with people who seem to be more important. 
And he looks underneath a person's worldly exterior and status with their socially constructed ideas of, and, and senses of value and importance. And he sees the commonality of all people that's put there not by society, but that's been put there by God. That they are all souls, and they are all souls who are in need, all bearing equal value and dignity, no matter what has happened to them or no matter what they've done. And that means he's not inconvenienced by anyone who approaches him. He's not ever too busy making sure that the universe is upheld. He doesn't put you on hold if someone seemingly more important comes to him. He shows no partiality. He had none for Jairus over this woman. He has none for the righteous over sinners. He, doesn't, uh, he has none for anyone whom we might view with a preference over someone that we might not care for as much. He looks at the forgotten. He has regard for those who we think are unclean. He has no preference for the housed over the homeless. This is how Jesus sees people. This is how God sees people. And this is who God is forming us to be, how he's forming us into being here, this sort of people through the work of his spirit and to seeing with his eyes. That's he, who he, you, he, that's who he wants you to be. But the thing about preferences is that you can't change your preferences. But the Spirit can. And the Spirit does. And the more that we dwell on Jesus, the impartiality that he showed to us as sinners, the more the Spirit changes us into his image. And his eyes become our eyes. His values become our values. What does it look like when God's people who are empowered and transformed by the Spirit of God regard others like Jesus, the Son of God, did? It affects the way that we talk to people as we fellowship after worship. It affects who we talk to people, or who the people are that we talk to. It changes not only how we talk about other people, but how we view other people. People don't become a problem no matter what their problem is. People are not problems. People are people. The third, though, so this woman approaches Jesus. Jesus stops, and then Jesus calls her forth. His question, who touched my garments? It's a summons for this woman, but not to chastise her. He's not angry. How dare you have touched my clothes? It's an invitation. He invites her to come forward and to respond in faith. She has a faith that was willing to touch his garments covertly, and he wants her to come and to have so much more. A faith that understands him much deeper. And reluctantly, she comes forward with fear and trembling, with the embarrassment that probably came with having been found out, but with fear from the anger, anger from everyone in the crowd who would have come into contact her and risked becoming unclean also. Maybe anger from Jesus that she thought. Anger at him being touched by an unclean woman. But also anger at being waylaid on this urgent matter of going to heal this dying girl. I think there's also a little bit of fear that she had in the sense that she recognized something in Jesus that inspired deep awe in her. But she comes forward in faith. It would have been so easy for her to run. 
It would have been easier to just simply be quiet and sink into the anonymity of the, cl- of the crowd. But she doesn't. She responds in deeper faith and with a gratitude for Jesus that showed itself by faith. Deep gratitude because her 12 long years have been erased. And Jesus sees her. He acknowledges her and her faith. What does he call her? Verse 34, he says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Daughter. As she was so afraid, wondering what Jesus would do to her or say to her, he acknowledges her with this beautiful title. An anonymous woman being given dignity by the Lord. He confers a title upon her that shows just how much she's valued. Daughter. Isn't that interesting? That's, that's all we know about her name. That there's no other name that was given here. But frankly, there's no other name that matters. She's a daughter of God. When weak, exhausted, unclean, and desperate people come to Jesus, even with minimal understandings of him, he welcomes them and he calls them with the most warm and caring and valued name that could ever be known. And he calls her forward and he doesn't just want her to, to, to see, he doesn't just want to see her gratitude and faith. He wants to further her restoration by continuing to illumine her understanding of the one who sets or stands before her. Her body was restored. Her religious and social status was healed. Her life was given back to her. But there was one more part that Jesus was going to make well in her. Her understanding of him. And by her remaining in the crowd, her understanding would have continued to be stunted and anemic. Discipleship isn't private. It's public. It happens when we enter publicly into the life of faith with others. We grow most amid others. Others who worship with us. Others who read and and study the word with us. Others who pray with us and serve with us. Individual discipleship isn't by, 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 by just staying home with your Bible. It's too easy. And in that case, easy equals stunted. But entering into public discipleship with others into a community of people. It invites you into seeing God in new ways as you see yourself in new ways, as you see others in new ways. And we begin to see God and the beauty of Jesus in new ways. And when Jesus stops and brings her forward, he gently corrects her understanding of what saved her. It wasn't his garments. It wasn't any divine power transferred to them. It wasn't her touch, even though her reaching out was an act of faith. What saved her was the Jesus who was within the garments. That's what faith is. Faith grasps out for Jesus. It reaches out for him. It's not faith that saves, but Jesus Christ who saves. And that's led many theologians to say something along the lines of the, the fact that faith is the hand by which we apprehend Christ. Lots of people have faith, but in the wrong things. See, it's not the things that are associated with Christ that provide life to us. It's not the things which lead us to Christ that give us life. It's Christ himself who gives us life. The Christ who is within them. the, The one to whom all those things point to. The one to whom all these things lead. And so let's think about us for a moment. If you come forward shortly, as we do every week, to take the bread and the cup, what is it that saves you? Does simply taking 
that act of eating and drinking that, that bread and cup, does that itself make you well? If you were baptized, was it the water washing over you that saved you? The answer is no to both. It's not the action that's done, but it's the faith in receiving the action. It's taking hold of Christ who stands within them. Christ who is symbolized in the waters. Christ who is seen in the bread and the cup. It's by taking him, taking him by faith in those, that's what saves you. It's Christ in them. By just taking those and saying, I'm good. It's the same thing as taking hold of Jesus' garments and saying, that's good. When what you really need is the one who is in the garment, the one who is in the bread and cup, the one who is in the waters, to take and receive them by faith. It's the same thing with going to church, the same thing with Bible reading, spiritual disciplines. That's not what saves you. It's Christ who stands at the center of them. He's the one who makes you well. He's the one who we apprehend and who we reach out to by faith. We partake of the sacraments. We enter into worship. We go about spiritual disciplines by faith in Christ who is either in them or led to us. Or, 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 or they lead us to him. Because Christ Jesus is the one who makes the woman strong. He's the one who restored this woman and gave her physical strength. He's the one who enlivened her faith and strengthened it by stepping aside and giving her his precious time. And friends, he makes us strong by giving us food to eat. The food of his very body and blood, which is given for sinners, given for us in our desperation. The food of himself, where we not only have Christ pictured, but where we have Christ for us. And we don't eat grasping and taking hold of his garments, but in faith we receive them and we grasp hold of the Jesus who is within them. This is food. Christ Jesus is our food. This is nourishment to us. It is strength for us when we are feeling anemic and exhausted and weak. Let's pray. Lord God, if we are feeling tired and desperate this morning, Jesus is our strength. He is the one who makes us well. He is the one who lifts us up and reminds us that in him all things are good. If we are feeling this morning strong and well, it's not because of anything within us. It's because of Jesus Christ, the one who has strengthened us this week, the one who has made us well. And so form us then, Lord God, by your spirit into seeing people as Jesus does, as Jesus did to this woman, that he didn't just regard Jairus, that he didn't just regard the, the one who is notable and noteworthy, but he also looked upon the anonymous, the one who was hidden, the one who was also desperate. Form us into seeing people like that as souls, as desperate souls, with no one having anything inherently greater than one another in them. We pray that you would prepare us right now for the food that you have set out for us. In Jesus' name, amen.